welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 40. My name is Dominic, and I am one of the co-hosts for the show. You will hear from the other host of the show, Janice, here shortly after the intro. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Sarita de Este. Sarita is the author of Circle for Hecate, as well as Hecate Liminal Rites, as well as around 20 other titles, such as Practical Planetary Magic, Practical Kabbalah, The Isles of the Many Gods, an A to Z guide to the pagan gods and goddesses of ancient Britain, and many others. She has also compiled five anthologies on topics related to the goddess, magic, and mythology, and has contributed dozens of articles to journals, anthologies, and almanacs over the years. Her personal beliefs and practices are informed not only by her love and study of history and philosophy, but also through experienced gnosis and mysticism. It was great fun to talk to Sarita. Um, You guys are really going to enjoy this one, I think. And the topic is Hecate, or Hecate, the torch-bearing light-bringer. We examine and explore her as an intermediary between the intelligible and the sensible realms, as you see in the Chaldean Oracles, which is really just an extension of her role as a deity associated with the passage through crossroads, doors, and other liminal places, um, as you see in, in earlier texts, earlier myths. Um, definitely a conflation with Enodia here. We also talk about her as a psychopomp. She is a shepherd of souls, so to speak, that are coming into the world and leaving the world. This brings her into strong resonance with the function of the moon, astrologically, and connects her with moon goddesses such as Selene and Artemis. She guides Persephone to Hades and guides her back to Demeter with the changing of the seasons. She rules over the Daimons and Angelos, the Ainges, as they cross the barrier between the noetic and the material realms. I am the key master. I am the gatekeeper. And in talking about her celestial and sometimes even solar nature, we definitely want to acknowledge her chthonic side, which is just as relevant and historically accurate and significant. Yes, she is indeed the goddess of ghosts and magic, but is much more than that, and we hope to highlight that in this episode. You can find what Sarita's doing at the HecateCovenant.com so HecateCovenant.com and she is a publisher of Avalonia Books so make sure to check out Avalonia.com the Hecate Symposium 2021 that will be May 22nd and 23rd and Sarita will be presenting as well as uh, lots of other people Georgie Michev, Jack Grail and about a dozen other well-known authors and practitioners. This is on Eventbrite, and I believe there's kind of a sliding scale um, for entrance fee, but it should be really interesting. So again, that's May 22nd and 23rd, 2021, Hecate Symposium. She also does a monthly full moon Zoom ritual through Eventbrite, so you could just go to Eventbrite and and, uh, search that way. So, she's a very busy lady, and uh, we appreciate her giving us some time today for this interview. As always, thank you very, very much to our Patreon supporters. You guys are very generous and are helping us keep the wheels turning and the show running. 
so thank you. We dedicate this episode, as always, to Hermes and Asclepios, but we also dedicate this to Hecate, the torch-bearing, triple-crowned, triple-formed, triple-headed goddess of the Triple Road. May the merits we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. to the show everyone we are very excited and happy to finally have the beautiful Sarita de Este on the show with us um, it's nice to see you in person on on the zoom call Hi. and we are going to talk about all things Hecate and who knows what else um, I think there's a lot of material we can cover thank you for coming on the show Sarita thank you so much for having me Dom yeah I'm absolutely delighted this is something that I've been dreaming of for a long time Finally, we get to make it happen. I'm really looking forward to seeing where this journey is going to take us. <laughs> cool, cool. So, well, let's start with a little bit about you. I'm I'm hoping our listeners know who you are. You've you've had a long career of writing. You're an author. Um, you're a well-known practitioner. You're pretty outspoken <laughs> on the internet um, to a degree, um, and you're a publisher. You have uh, Avalonia books, which is a, a great publishing house, a lot of excellent uh, books that you've put out. Thank you. We recently had uh, Christopher Plaisance on and uh, talked about his excellent book that you published. A, a wonderful book, Evocating the Gods. It's a really, really good book. Yeah. So so let's, let's talk about how you got started briefly with maybe with the occult and with, with Hecate specifically. Okay. Or Hecate, however we want to pronounce it. I don't mind. I think she's <laughs> with different accents and different pronunciations. I'm not that fixated on on pronunciations. And I think that goes with being, you know, speaking more than one language. I was born in Cape Town in South Africa. So I had a childhood in Africa, which I guess sets me aside a little bit from my peers in the UK. And um, my formal introduction to magic was through initiated initiatory witchcraft. But that journey was a very interesting one and a very fantastic foundation for many things I've done in my life. But my, part, my path with that parted when I became more and more interested and more clear that I was a polytheist and that my work is more based on theurgy and sorcery than witchcraft. And I guess over the years that became more clear to me and more obvious, even though it probably was always there from the beginning. My initial work with industry witchcraft 
happened in South Africa and that continued in the UK after I was here for a few years and I started meeting people and this is in the pre everybody having internet at home days when it wasn't so easy to meet people. Um, so I've explored many different traditions within that. Um, my previous magical partner and writing partner, David Rankin, and I did a lot of work together. He is very keen on the Kabbalah, so I learned a lot from him about Kabbalah and related topics. And um, I've just explored many different things. And over the years, the thing that has become most important to me is Hekate, which I think most people know because I'm constantly talking about her. <laughs> but I'm not a monotheist. That's a misunderstanding. <laughs> I'm not just a Hecate girl. Um, I am a polytheist, so there are other gods that I also honour and worship and that I also, I don't like the term in English, work with, but that are also gods that is part of my household and my temple that I have a regular relationship with. So for me, polytheism is very much where it's at, at this stage of my life. Who knows, in another 20 or 30 years, I might be doing something different. Because it's always difficult, I think, for us in this generation, because most of us are converts to magic or paganism or polytheism or what, whatever tradition we follow, because we weren't raised with that necessarily. I was very lucky to be raised in Africa and in South Africa in particular, because it not only forced me to be um, multilingual, I speak um, English, but also Afrikaans and Kosa. And I was raised within a kind of mostly Italian household or family, but also with Afrikaans relatives and friends and, and stuff like that. And, and the religious sides of Catholicism and Calvinism is so diverse which is what I was you know faced with as a child but then also learning Kosa which is one of the indigenous languages opened up all kinds of new possibilities and, and ideas so I guess my my introduction came in bits and bobs you know which I, I guess is true for all of us really I didn't have a eureka moment that's really interesting um so in terms of your family name, are you related to like the um, sort of nobles, you know, the noble family from Italy that's also associated with the Tarot? Um, so that would be telling, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so DST is a pen name I write under um, for various reasons because my I was married more than once and my original maiden name is quite rare. And I wanted to kind of maintain some sense of anonymity so I chose a name that is linked, is linked to my father's mother's family which is linked to that family in turn so there is a close connection and I was completely unaware when I chose the name of the tarot connection um, I was also unaware of the connection to Alistair Crowley <laughs> with <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually completely unaware of those connections. The only thing that I was aware of was this connection that my grandmother had because she had a little picture of Isabella de Esti, um, which was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. And she used to tell me about this and many other things. My grandmother told a lot of stories, um, as all good nonas do. <laughs> so my name totally came from that not from any kind of occult 
reference. So it is a family name, but not a direct family name. Interesting. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's a fascinating family, though, the, the DST and, and all the, the various noble families that were around at that time of the Renaissance and subsequent. But it's a long time ago. And, and I've been doing a lot of genealogical work because of my mother's family, so unrelated to this particular topic. And I think one thing I've come to understand is that the surnames that we have and the stories we tell each other about, you know, our families and and things is so, <laughs> so vague, really, because all of us have so many surnames that, you know, if we just go back to great grandparent level, there's so many surnames that that is us. And birth certificates is a very unreliable way of knowing who the father was. <laughs> <laughs> That's also true. That's very true. Okay, well, like you mentioned, you are constantly talking about Hecate. So we thought, what better person to have on? And side note, you also you you put out quite a few books, but you have a great book on Artemis as well. I think that needs a little bit more attention. I, I really like that one. I'm working on a second edition of that. Oh, excellent, awesome, yeah, highly recommend that. And um, you, and I want to mention, I mean, because you know, I I I watched it. You know, Sarita, in my opinion, is is really the person who's responsible for a lot of this uh, huge surge of interest in Hecate. I mean, 10 years ago, 12, 15 years ago, she was, you know, promoting these books, talking about this. She formed the covenant of Hecate. She, I mean, in my opinion, the whole surge of intrigue and fascination with Ecate wouldn't be what it is without Sarita. I mean, I, I, that's when we became online friends and um, I watched it and I've been supportive of it from the start because I've always had a passion for Ecate, even though these days I don't talk much about it because I'm a contrarian and when things get popular, I step back. <laughs> but, um, but it makes me happy that it's gotten big, but I believe this wonderful lady right here deserves the credit for that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, certainly, I started my first group to Hecate 20 years ago now. It's, in April 2001, the group grew to a very specific number and and volume that kind of you know caused a lot of things to happen. And back then, it was impossible to get an icon of Hecate. So things certainly have changed. I'm not sure that I'm the only one that is responsible for that change. I know I've been, you know, Hecate's cheerleader. I kind of need pom poms. Um, <laughs> I've never, I've never done that. I wonder what it's like. <laughs> it's probably quite different from Cherokee. <laughs> um, <laughs> different top, uh, topic altogether, but um, the, the the movement certainly has grown and evolved a lot. And you know, a few years ago, you could see that th things were just developing into so many different strands. And there's so many different teachers now, and so many. I mean, I was I, I joke frequently in recent months that Hegarty seems to have become a goddess of literature because there's so many books about her now. I did a little anthology of her in 2006, which was the first one I was involved in. Before that, to my knowledge, there was only three books about her. And now there must be, I've, I've lost track slightly, but there must be 20, 30 um, books about Hecate by, by different authors. There's colouring books, uh, you know, for her. There is, you know, various kind of grimoire type books. And then, of course, the history books as well, which um, 
it's mostly me at the moment, but there's some academics writing about her now. So, so much has changed and um, it's very interesting to watch it <laughs> from the inside, even if sometimes it, it does feel a little bit like, you know, what what is going on with this? It's <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. And, you know, I'm very, I don't know, honoured or blessed to be part of that explosion, but, but it can sometimes be a little bit frightening to watch as well yeah like we talked about beforehand um there's a lot of a lot of wackiness out there surrounding hikate right now um she seems mm. to be whatever you want her to be to a lot of people they just kind of create their own version and run with it um not all material out there is equal equally no and it, and it can be very, very confusing, I think, for people that are starting their journey of exploration with her now, who's, who's looking for information to work with and looking for material to um, rely on. And I guess it's a little bit like Proclus's hymn to Hecate and Janus, which starts off with Hail Many Named Mother of the Gods. You know, she is called the Many Named Goddess. She's also called the Many Formed Goddess. So, in many ways, Hegarty historically has been a you know the word shape shifting is very much mine that I've started using for this, but she fits that role of a shape shifting goddess because you find her with triple form, double form, single form, you find her um having these slightly contrary roles depending on who of the ancient writers you follow and believe you know she's the goddess of ghosts and necromancers and creating essentially zombies reanimation but she's also the mother of the gods she's the goddess that is revered more by the gods than any other. So the gods are worshipping Hecate according to the theogony for example. Zeus honours her so you've got all these like very contrary issues with her. She's a virgin goddess. She's a maiden goddess. She's a young goddess historically. But even historically, she's sometimes paired with Hermes. She's also paired with um, Zeus. There's, there's a whole cult of the kind of empty thrones, for example, on the island of Halki, where there's two stone thrones that are dedicated to Ecclesi and Zeus, where they are enthroned together. So there's, there's a lot of very contrary things and then also things that we don't know. We don't know what the relationship was that people perceived her to have with Zeus, who later became the Olympian god. And I think Hecate is a wonderful way of learning more about, in a way, European Near Asian religions because she is connected to nearly everything, um, you know, from Jesus and the Archangel Michael through to Kronos and you know the 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 Titan gods you can find Hecate nearly everywhere so it is a it's a very long journey and a very wide time period so some of the new things that have emerged like for example in the 20th century the idea that she's a crone goddess which has become so popular <laughs> has no precedent at all in the ancient world prior to the 20th century. That just wasn't a thing. Uh, so, this, the same thing with this emphasis on her as a goddess of witchcraft and of the dead. She is a goddess of witchcraft and magic and the dead, 
but it's not the thing that she was known for. She was known for a lot of other things as well, like, for example, uh, as Korotropos, as, as the nursemaid to children, she's a goddess of agriculture. <laughs> she's a goddess who is like a psychopomp. You find it in the Mysteries of Elefsi, of Eleusis, where she's leading and behind she kind of follows and proceeds Persephone on her yearly journey but she also leads Demeter to Helios as part of of that whole story so she has these kind of positions of connecting so I would love to see where all of this stuff that we, we're facing today is going to go and how it will develop in another you know, say five or 10 years, let alone another 50 if I'm still around to see it. It would be fascinating because she is that, that connector. And that's and that's kind of her I role find, is, um, is that connector role. Sorry, Janice. Oh, that's okay. I was just going to say another thing I find interesting is that she she has both Titanic and Olympian characteristics. I mean, and the torch-bearing um, the torch bearing aspect of her, I mean, to me that that is almost a subtle nod to perhaps also the mysteries of uh, Prometheus and Hephaestus and the um, uh, the Dioscori and all those folks. You know, I mean, it goes pretty deep. And there's a lot of connections. Yes. You know, it, it just it's really intriguing to me when you go into when you get outside of these boxes you're describing and into the actual being. I mean, it's just when we get into these beings that are liminal, like her, like Hermes, like Prometheus, you can't really even call them properly a Titan or an Olympian or because they're shapeshifters, they're deeply creative, and they appear on every level of reality, whereas some deities only appear on one, one level of reality and their daimons manifest them elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So how do you know, how do you? define or put in a box a goddess who has this aspect of you know pluriformity uh self-transformation and uh, omnipresence yes yeah, so i think that is why you have this this everybody inventing or reinventing equity today and i i'm not going to say that it's wrong as a blanket sweep thing because i think that you know certainly i've had visions or dreams of her that isn't fully linked to anything I've known at that moment in time to be linked to her and I've had the same actually with Hermes where one day I'll tell you the story but I I followed a butterfly for half an hour in a very big Latin American city once (laughs) and I, I, I was as sober as it could be so um you know these gods sometimes take us to places that we don't expect to be and sometimes they can be right in your face they can say hi here I am see me hear me and we can still be very very blind to them and I think Hegarty this this is kind of saying the light too bright to see and and as the goddess this this phosphorus torch bearer lamp bearer light aspect of her is something that everybody gives lip service to and it's the most obvious connection to her you know hence um Prometheus and and, in all these kind of connections and and also of course in the Orphic tradition you've got various kind of connections there that that is very interesting to to explore as well but 
I guess, I guess within modern witchcraft and occultism, there's some people that are slightly frightened of the light. Um, it's 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 a kind of interesting phenomenon, really, that they they slightly, you know, if if you kind of you know dark and gothy and and, and all this kind of stuff, then they're right there, they're right there. But but light is is in a in a way a lot more dangerous, isn't it? It's it's a lot more frightening because it is, you know. Uh, you know, meeting somebody in the dark, everybody looks better in the dark. <laughs> um, you know, it's true, right? <laughs> uh, that so, leads right into her soteriological function because the the so the soters and sotera are are the light bearing gods and goddesses, and they're the ones that actually upset the the order. They they really upset the order, yes. Um, you know, for, for people listening to this that don't know what we, we're talking about, you've got Lucifer, you've got the whole concept of light there. And of course, Lucifera is a title of Hecate when you move into the Roman world, when she's kind of merged with and very much closely linked to the, the cult of Diana, who is also Lucifera. And you've got that same thing. And, and I, I really think that that is what upsets people so much. Because a lot of people, I think... The, the very idea of having a, a very bright light shone on what you're doing and who you are and what you're surrounding yourself with is offensive to people, <laughs> you know, which is why when you when you try and say to people, hello, these are the facts, you know, whether it's about Ekate or anything um, in any part of our lives today, spiritual or mundane, if you if you shine a light on it and you say this is the reality of it, Often people don't want to know. <laughs> it's far easier, it's far nicer and more comfortable to kind of buy into that whole illusionary world. Um, I think, you know, Plato's cave in the Republic is, is of course, the kind of classic example of that, of, of somebody, you know, having that opportunity, but actually when they have it, they don't want it. It's too frightening, it's too challenging. So um, I guess it's just part of that journey into the mysteries and, and really allowing yourself to just see what is there. We, we all talk about we don't want illusion, but when, when it comes down to it, most of us prefer it. It's true. It's true. And, and we can't ignore marketing as well. Um, like you had mentioned, the whole dark, gothic, evil, demon stuff is, is really hot right now. But it's very two-dimensional. For, for someone like Hecate, um, I, I really want to shine a light on her entirety, uh, the, the full picture. I mean, Homer calls her, what, tender-hearted and bright-coiffed. She's mm -hmm. very compassionate. She shows compassion to the mother of Hercules, to Persephone, to Demeter. Um, you don't see all of this kind of Stuff discussed. No, so maybe let's start at the beginning with that relationship that you had mentioned earlier to Zeus. And this is around 700 BC, maybe. So Hesiod is, is, is the, the kind of first source for that, as it were, because that is the oldest known text that we have available for the story of the gods. It's the, the first known theogony for the Greek Hellenic gods. And it's a story of how the gods came to be and their relationships with one another. And in there, Hecate is named as being the daughter of Asteria, the star goddess, and of Perseus, the destroyer, both of them being titans. 
and of the older regime. So it kind of makes her, in that story, a cousin to Artemis and Apollo and a great-granddaughter to Gaia, Oranos, etc. So Hecate, when she's mentioned in Hesiod's Theogony, is, is exalted, which has caused a lot of scholars to take an interest in that short section in the longer text because there's been arguments about maybe it was added later, maybe Hesiod was a Hecate devotee mm-hmm. because he was from Anatolia, so he may have written it from a personal perspective. But the interesting thing about that, where, where Hecate is called by, you know, she, she's named as as receiving all the honours that she had before, which is a share of the ocean, a share of the land, and a share of the starry sky. If we look at that, those are her are the kind of originators of the whole, you know, story of the gods. In in my book, Circle for Hecate, I'm just going to see if I can open it up. You probably won't be able to. Um, I did a little, you know, um, I don't know if that's going to show up. I did a little kind of family tree, as it were, mm-hmm. for Hecate and where she sits in it all. And if you look at that, you know, from Chaos comes Gaia and from Gaia comes Pontus and Uranus. And Gaia is the earth, Pontus is the actual sea and Uranus is the um, starry sky. So when you when you say Hecate has got a share of these things that she had from the beginning, it's literally a share of the earth, the sea and the heavens. It's a literal share of her inheritance. So it's a very interesting thing looking at that from a theogony perspective. And Asteria, of course, is called the goddess of happy name. You know, she was seen as a very benevolent goddess as well, a goddess that was able to um, defend in that story her virginity against Zeus's advances, causing Leto to be the next one that Zeus turns his eyes to. But Asteria becomes the island of Delos, which becomes the holy place of Apollo, a really sacred island. But it said before that happened, there was a sanctuary to Asteria, possibly on that island, which was like a dream oracle. So you've got lots of stories there that, that you know, in connections to explore. But, but Hecate is given this exalted position. And I know earlier authors and myself included 15, 20 years ago, I would have said the same thing is that Hecate got this role because of the way that she fought on the side of the Olympian gods, the incoming regime, against the Titan gods, the kind of older, seen as oppressive regime. But I think there's a lot more to it, because a lot of these Greek stories isn't so much a factual history story like we want to look at it. It's more like an kind of way of of connecting different cultures and different cults sometimes or different um, groups of people coming together. So it's pretty obvious that Hecate had this role that was more important. So she remains a goddess that's more important. And it's not entirely clear why. Um, There's no evidence for that. But what we do know is that it's not out of context because when you look at later texts, like right, if you go from the Theogony, which is about 700 BC, through to the Chaldean Oracles, for example, which is, say, 200, 300 CE, that's nearly a thousand years, Hecate is still given this exalted position. Because in the Theogony, in the Theogony she's, she's this goddess that's used honors above all. 
And in the Chaldean Oracle, she's worshipped alongside the first father, who could be seen as Zeus, um, had sometimes, that also puts her in an exalted position above all the other gods. There's some of the other Greek goddesses that come into it, but in a kind of lesser role. And Hecate is shown as ruling over the physical realm within that, sorry, not the physical realm, the spiritual realm within that um, analogy in the Chaldean oracles as well. So she's incredibly important because she suddenly becomes not just Soteira, which she has in other aspects as well, like rescuing cities, but she has it in a kind of spiritual context. She is the soul. She is the soul of the world. She's the Axis Mundi, which is very, very different from these ideas of her as, you know, some kind of dreadful, scary <laughs> monster in a cave somewhere. But I'm sure she can be that as well. Um, some friends and I that have been working together for a very long time on and off came up with a theory about 10 years ago or so that possibly she manifests herself in more frightening forms or maybe she sends spirits because of course she's got many different forms of spirits under her command maybe she sends some of these things forth to appear to people that aren't quite ready to see her or to experience her in a way of, of preparation which would fit with the mythology would fit with the mysteries it's a very interesting, you know, idea to kind of explore from a more, you know, experiential perspective, mm. but that's kind of verging off onto something slightly different. <laughs> I, I have heard that she meets people where they are. If that's where you are, yeah. then that's what you're going to see, perhaps. Yeah, but maybe it's not, maybe she sends a party to meet mm -hmm. them. I, I, I was just going to say, um, maybe that's the daimons that people are encountering, which are in her retinue. Right. That, 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 that is how I personally think of it. It doesn't mean that it's not somehow valid or that it's less valid or not as important. <laughs> All the kind of disclaimers I can add to that. It's just, it's a different experience. And I think sometimes we want to see anything mystical that we experience as being the kind of ultimate thing. And I blame some of that on, you know, and I've said this in public and You've said I'm outspoken, so I might as well be outspoken. <laughs> <laughs> I blame this on, on a lot of kind of neo-pagan books that, that will say things like, do what feels right, right. you know, the, whatever what, whatever you feel is right, whatever you experience is valid. Well, yeah, of course everything we experience is valid, <laughs> but it might not be what we think it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because when it comes to the gods and the spiritual realms and anything associated with the occult and magic one of the first things that we can learn from stories that are out there so that we can avoid making those same mistakes is that um things aren't always what they seem to be mm -hmm. there's a lot of illusion there's a lot of yesodic just kind of things that aren't quite what they seem and I think we've got to be careful to say that, you know, it's always Ekate or always whichever God who's coming to us just because we mm -hmm. think or we want it to be that. It's, it's a complicated subject because you've got to go into the whole theology of it and what an individual believes. But I think it's not helpful to tell people, you know, just do what feels right and whatever happens to you is valid and that's just what you're ready for. I, th I think... 
we need to start kind of implementing mechanisms for testing what we experience more often and to question what we're told more often as well. It doesn't matter, you know, you, sh you should question what I'm saying right now, hopefully. And we should question what other people tell us more often because the world of the spiritual and especially the magical isn't always what it seems to be. There's a lot of illusionary stuff that we've got to fight through. That's true. And, and there's also um, the, the there's also this sort of uh, womb of the mind, the fluid barrier of, of the consciousness. And so we perceive everything through that mind. And so part of it is also being able to see through the veils of our own mind, which clothe clothes things we experience in forms that we may be able to more easily interpret you know, according to our biases and desires right. and things like that. But I want to go backwards for a minute. Um, I think what you're talking about really relates to, you know, how can we really hope to totally grasp a goddess that on one hand, if we look at the Chaldean oracles, you know, she has a hypercosmic and cosmic and cosmic aspect because she extends through these realms and her girdle is the border between each of these realms it's very sophianic really in a very gnostic uh -huh. sense and yet at the other on the other edge of side of things if we look at the historical aspect she goes back you know if you look at the european genome it's composed of two main groups and um, the group in uh, the mediterranean originates in the near east asia minor turkey bulgaria and she seems to go back to the very early indigenous aboriginal origins of of that haplogroup in that area and seems to be connected with like the mother of the beasts who's associated with the tree of life you know, that's the world axis. So, I mean, for us to... That's something I think that's really important because a lot of people don't realise when they're looking at these triple formed, this is made by a friend of mine in um, Brazil, um, based on a historical thing, but this pillar in the middle that, that Hecate is often shown around is actually a really important part of these images. It's not just a, a convenient way of gluing three images together because this is the polos. Mm -hmm. It's the, the pole. So the, the whole tree cult, pole cult that you get with Asherah and with a lot of those Near Eastern deities is very, very present with Hecate. This is a very important point, Jane. Sorry, I'm interrupting like Oh, you can interrupt me all you like. This is we want we want to hear what you have to say. We can talk with each other anytime. It's you that's the treat. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, so how you know to presuppose that we understand anything about a being this vast and and ancient, whether we're looking at it in the spatial sense of the universe or in the historical sense of literally human origins. I mean, it's, it's inappropriate and irreverent. Although I know people don't intend to be impious, it really is a form of impiety. The sort of, the sort of um, devil may care attitude, the, I'll define it as I choose. It, uh, to the ancients, this would have been considered to be hubris. And maybe it still is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, because I think, you know, I, I sometimes try and look at these things from a kind of practical perspective. And I think there's there's several things going on with the, the with the modern movement. Some of that is just is is a form of ignorance that goes with pop culture. Of course, Ekati had this big role in more recently in Sabrina since last year, 
where she suddenly becomes the goddess of the, you know, replacing the Baphomet devil, uh. Satan <laughs> character before. But she's had a lot of roles like that in recent years. Um, somebody called Hazel, who's a member of the Covenant of Equity, has done a kind of paper. It's, it's, it's like a scientific analysis, really. <laughs> of every single pop culture reference you could find to Hecate, which is on the Covenant of Equity website. And there's so many. I'm not really somebody that's that into pop culture that I really was even aware of some of these things where she appeared, but it's it's a big thing. You know, she definitely is in a lot of, of, of different roles. She's, she's found her way into a lot of pop culture. So I think some of these misunderstandings and stuff is simply because people the, the entrance point is no longer a book on the occult or an occult teacher. It's watching some pop culture cartoon or reading a comic book or playing a computer game. And there is Ekati. And so they understand her from that perspective rather than understanding her as maybe our generation did by reading the Homeric Hymn or reading the Theogony or reading even Alistair Crowley would, would be an improvement on <laughs> what we faced with sometimes now. But maybe these are just different gateways for people to meet the goddess and maybe she's got some, you know, I've got to kind of assume that she's a real being after all these years. So if she's real, then maybe she's providing these as gateways in, in one way or another. And a lot of this nonsense might just be on the surface, one hopes. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of kind of power craze, egotistical stuff going on where people feel that all you need to have Hegarty appear to you in physical form in front of you right now is to recite some modern hymn you found somewhere online and once you've recited this hymn and you say hey I want x y and z she's just going to deliver it like that <laughs> so, so there's, there's these kind of extremes to the kind of misunderstandings and and I don't quite understand why people think that you just need to do a ritual too and then a god is going to be your best mm -hmm. friend but I think some of this might go back to I don't know you guys are kind of same generation as me. You remember in the kind of 90s and also in the early noughties, there were lots and lots of books on the gods and yeah. on magic and witchcraft and stuff. And they always had a little section in them about the gods. And they would always have like a paragraph. And if you were lucky, two paragraphs explaining who the gods were. And then there would be something telling you that all you needed if you wanted a, this spell or this spell or whatever the kind of purpose was, is you just needed the appropriate God. It was like pick a mix. It was like a vending machine. <laughs> it was like a vending machine. Right, right. And I think a lot of that stuff has affected people. And it's not just affected the younger generation. It's also affected some of our generation mm -hmm. and, and older generations because that's all they ever saw. They like, well... I don't know, I want Aphrodite to give me my perfect lover, hell Aphrodite. <laughs> or, you know, I need help getting my computer to work, hail Hermes. Yep. Uh, I'm going down the pub, hail Dionysus. You know, so it was a little bit like a kind oh, of yeah. culture where the gods became our friends. 
I definitely blame neo-paganism for that. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure in England it's the same, and in Europe it's the same way, but in America, you know, the, the neo-pagan movement was born out of the hippie movement, and there's this sort of irreverence for a tradition and for, um, you know, ancient sources in favor of, you know, just whatever pops out of your mind. I, I want to say two things on this note. On one hand, so I also think perpetuating the disservice to her is a sort of emphasis among certain contingents of just seeing her as this underworld goddess who's, you know, a goetic underworld goddess. You know, all there is is the underworld, actually. There's no celestial gods. There's no hypercosmic realm. That's just all intellectual. It's just a bunch of people intellectualizing, oh, those darn Neoplatonists. You know what I mean? But in reality, that does a disservice to her because it also continues to amalgamate this idea of this gothic underworld, dark, scary, skeleton, death goddess, all this blah, blah, blah. And it it, it just, it, it adds this deeper level so that the people who get into the dark fluff through modern media then find people perpetuating this idea. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's the goetic goddess. And then it, there, it, it just continues to actually act as an obstacle to genuine experience, to gnosis of ecate. And on the other hand, I guess I do think perhaps that sometimes when we see a, an archetype reemerging in the collective consciousness in a dark way, that darkness may be an indication that of the deity emerging from our, us being um, less aware of that deity. It, it's a transitional manifestation that indicates more our awareness of the goddess or God, for instance. So like collectively Ecate's appearing dark, but that's because it's sort of like she's appearing from the shadows of our, of our ignorance and hopefully we'll begin to take brighter manifestations. I mean, that's an optimistic attitude, but I do try and balance my cynicism with a little bit of optimism. That's rare that you do that. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) I think (laughs) I'm not going to comment on that. I don't know you well enough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, taking a step back, um, you both mentioned Anatolia, and I think that area of the world is extremely important um, to to maybe touch on a little bit more. Can you maybe talk about um, her origins there and maybe some of the yeah. goddesses that she's conflated with in that area? Yeah, so it's widely thought that Hecate's origins as a, you know, goddess or certainly her cult pre-Hellenic times, if you want, was probably focused around Anatolia Carrier in particular, which is the area kind of around Bodrum and inland from there. So it's not Istanbul necessarily, it's kind of lower down, but certainly she was also worshipped up into modern Turkey, Istanbul, and also in the in what is now the Balkans, which some of which was part of Thrace. So that whole area, of course, Medea is from the Black Sea region, which is, you know, above Anatolia to the right of Thrace, from to the right of Bulgaria, if you like. Um, so you've got a lot of connections in that part of the world, going right down into what is modern-day Syria as well. And in that region, we find the temple of Hecate in Legina near Stratonicea, which I was very lucky to visit about five years ago now. I was hoping to be back there last year, but everything in the world is on hold. And 
Hecate's Temple in Legina really came as a surprise to me because I'd only seen photographs of it before I went there. And actually, it's massive. It's a huge complex. And there's a lot of work being done there now, all by Turkish um, archaeologists, which is the first time for a Turkish site. And it will be very interesting to see what else they uncover there. Um, that site was part of a mystery tradition to Hecate, which was linked to the city of Stratonisir, which had the whole key-bearing cult where a young girl, usually related to the high priest of the temple, would carry a key in a procession that happened there. In that region, and on the the depictions that were on the side of this temple, we find Hecate in a very different role. She stands at once between the kind of Greeks, the Hellenics, because this was the last large Hellenic temple actually to be built as well. Um, so she stands literally between them and the, the so-called Amazonians, the people from the other side, the kind of wilder areas inland from Anatolia, which there's very little known about. We also find her playing a much more important role in the birth of Zeus on one of the uh, friezes on the temple as well, mm. where she seems to be very directly involved with Rhea and the baby Zeus, again, kind of linking her to the dactyls, which I don't know whether everybody is familiar with the dactyls. Dactyls literally means fingers, which is why I'm wiggling my finger fingers. <laughs> but... Um, they're kind of really interesting beings that um, kind of beat their drums in the cult of, of Kaibali, and they were also linked to this rare cult thing with Zeus as a baby in Crete, where they were said to kind of make lots of noise, beating their shields to and dancing and stomping their feet and, and doing all kinds of quite ecstatic things to mask the sound of the baby's Zeus crying. Hmm. And they kind of turn up in all kinds of strange things. They they also in, invented some kind of crib for, for Zeus, the baby Zeus, to be in so that he wouldn't touch the earth because Kronos, of course, was a god of everything. So if Zeus, the baby, touched the earth, Kronos might have become aware of Zeus. So they kind of made a, a kind of hanging basket contraption for him in the cage. So that they have a really important and interesting role. So they're kind of linked to Hecate there. There's also links to Apollo in the Anatolia region where Hecate is frequently worshipped alongside Apollo. There are temples and sanctuaries where Hecate and Zeus was worshipped together, specifically um, Zeus as the um, Pamenator, who... Um, you know, there was like equality meals that were offered, where, which is not dissimilar to what some Harry Krishnas offered today, which most Western people would be familiar with, where everybody gets the same food, regardless of their status in society. So there were all kinds of things going on in that region where Hecate had a role. And just off the coast of Anatolia, we've got islands like Kos, where Hecate was closely linked to one of the sons of Asclepios, the god of healing. There was a sanctuary there to her. And she's also named slightly disproportionate number of times in kind of inscriptions and, and things found there. We find all kinds of strange little temples and stuff, but most significantly there's a link to Hecate and the, the temple of Artemis of Ephesus, mm -hmm. which I think needs a lot of further exploration and study. Yeah. 
But what I've been able to find out is, for example, there is a story that tells of a statue that stood not in front of the gates of the temple, which is where you'd expect it to find, but behind the temple, which kind of indicates that maybe this was there before the main temple. Because Hecate everywhere else is usually in front of the temple, by the gate, by the door, in the mm -hmm. entranceway, uh -huh. etc. But here's specifically, which was apparently so bright that nobody could look upon it. Because if you looked upon it, you'd go blind. Mm. <laughs> so you couldn't look directly on it. And there's also interesting stories of Julian the Apostate, which most listeners might be familiar with as the emperor who tried to bring back paganism as a kind of accepted cult after Constantine. He was the nephew of Constantine. And, and there's an interesting story about how Hecate leads him from, you know, as a young man being educated by, by Christian philosophers. One of the Christian philosophers, Eusebius, kind of takes a slight worry about Julian, the young Julian's interest in theurgy and decides to teach him a lesson <laughs> and show him the folly of these things. So he, 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 he shows him the folly by taking him to a ritual to, in the Temple of Hecate in Ephesus, where he then experienced this absolutely amazing thing where the goddess is laughing and the torches go on light and it might have been stage trickery because there's a lot of things to be said about you know stage magic being used in temples during that period but it leads Julian to then desert the Christian philosophers teaching him and becoming an initiate at um uh, Eleus not Eleusis, at Ephesus. Um, Ephesus, and then going on that journey of eventually becoming emperor of both the Western and Eastern realm of the Roman Empire and trying to bring back paganism. And, of course, that ended up in a lot of complete chaos for a few years. And, he, you know, he tried. But he had very similar things to say, what, you know, um, about the, the paganism that was left over at the time. You know, he thought a lot of it was very corrupt and very sad and very uninformed. And some of the things that he encountered wasn't necessarily what he thought it ought to be by the time Christianity had become a, a kind of national religion for a few years. So in that region, we also find, of course, the Phrygian great mother goddess, Kybali. And with Kybali, there's this mysterious connection to both Hecate and Hermes, where we often see depictions of, of um, the enthroned. I mean, I think everybody's familiar with the kind of seated Kybali with the lions on her throne. Mm -hmm. And often, instead of the lions, you'll find on the, the throne, on the sides of it, there'll be smaller depictions of both Hecate and Hermes flanking mm -hmm. Kybali. Oh, wow. And you also find depictions on coins and medallions of Hecate and Hermes following and preceding Kybali when she's on her chariot. But there's no actual explanation for it. So it's, it's like an interesting cult function of some sort that these gods had there. But there's no real mythological explanation for what Hermes and Hecate has to do with the cult of Kybali. Because... She's, they're not in the stories, as it were. So there's a lot of things there to explore. And, you know, some scholars believe these days that 
Hecate possibly is a continuation of the cult of, of, of the Phrygian great mother, who is the mountain mother, the Potniotheron figure that we more often associate with Artemis. But, but of course, Artemis, especially in Anatolia, is so closely linked to Hecate. Mm. It's, it's, it's impossible to separate them properly. You've even got Apollo having the title of Hecatos, which is like a male version of Hecate in that region. So the connection between Apollo and Hecate and Apollo and Artemis thing comes into question. You know, there's there's some conflation possibly of different culture and stuff that, that isn't explained in mythology, but might be the reason why they're kind of linked as cousins. You know, it, sometimes cults diverge and, and new names or new epithets become more important. So I don't think we'll ever know unless there's new information on exactly what that origin was. But certainly there's a lot of really interesting things even today in that that region of Turkey, for example. You've got a goddess called Shamaran or a figure called Shamaran who's very popular still in that kind of carrion or what used to be the Carrion region of Turkey. And she's this like serpentine goddess figure who um, people still have on, you can buy little trinkets with her on it and they have statues in town squares to her and you find her just everywhere. And she has some very interesting parallels to Ekathi, of course, the serpent connection, but also various other, you know, motherly connections, etc. So I think it's possible that that is the origin of her cult, or certainly the oldest known evidence for her cult. But it is also possible that older origins might have existed in, in, in Crete, where you've got the Minoan or so-called Minoan snake goddesses holding their snakes, uh -huh. which has a lot in common with Hecate. And you've also got the stories of Pasiphae being linked to Crete, which is, of course, the sister of Circe and Aetes. And Aetes, King Aetes, is the father of Medea. So there's, there's some interesting connections to Crete. And Carrier has stories about people from the sea and stuff. And there used to be um, kind of tribes that lived on boats that were traders and, and kind of moved goods between different islands in that region. So it might have been that they took the cult to that region. And it's also possible that it's got even older roots either in Assyria, you know, Mesopotamia. There's, there's some very interesting parallels with Astarte, Ishtar. You've, you've also got, of course, possible origins for Hermes from that region because you, you find that Caduceus staff appearing with a lot of the kind of Assyrian mesopotamian kind of deities you know there's a whole other subject i guess but you find very similar kind of staffs being held and and this connection between hecate and hermes is clearly a very old one and a very enduring one because both of them also plays it plays a really important role in the Eleusian mysteries where hermes is the one that goes to negotiate for persephone's release and hecate is the one that then takes her on that journey every year so there's a lot of connections there to explore, but also the Hittite cultures. And a lot more work is being done on translating the texts that have been found there. And I imagine more, I don't know, source material will kind of emerge from that region as well. So it's, 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 it's a 
she's so vast and so multifunctional. I can kind of blabber on all day long. I can I can sit here and listen to you blabber all day long. <laughs> that was a fascinating uh, explanation and, and lesson. I, I went off on a few tangents there. I'm so no, sorry. Lo- we loved it. No, please. It's it's amazing. We want you to blabber all day. Um, you know, this this is just, I mean, you can go down so many different routes with this. It's, it's so intriguing. You know, one of the problems that we've been faced with due to the effacement of the past by um, imperial Christianity, not not original Christianity, but imperial Christianity, effacing the um, pre-Christian spirituality is, is the fact that we don't, you know, we have a lot of forensic evidence. We don't necessarily, though, have evidence of rites. We don't have evidence of how to perform rituals. I mean, it's, re- it's rather scant. So what does a modern, you know, you've done a lot of work on reconstructing a sort of cult of this goddess who deserves to be adored and respected and loved. Um, mm-hmm. And it's our hope that this podcast will assist in doing that. But what does that look like? What, what does the reconstruction of this um, reverential adoration uh, look like in our era? So I think there's a lot of different people that are doing really good work on this. Um, I should mention my friend Georgie Mischief, who's um, created a, a modern-day stone-built temple to Ekati and the gods associated with her from a Thracian Bulgarian perspective, which is absolutely amazing. I had the honour of going there before the temple was built and after, and the way that they are approaching it is is very much in a kind of combination of Bulgarian folkloric stuff that have survived and in that region a lot of things have survived in the Balkans, of course mixed with Hellenic things and, you know, their own ideas, but but very much in an Orphic context. Um, I myself started out, as I said earlier, in an initiatory witchcraft context, but it soon became obvious that Hecate was leading not just me, but several other members of that group in a completely different journey, which we didn't have a, a context for in the early noughties because there just wasn't anything you know, you were either Fellowship of Isis or you were Wiccan or you were Golden Dawn or OTO. You know, there wasn't that many options available and there wasn't that much information available at the time. What path I've gone down is very much trying to kind of learn from the past and experimenting with that in the present day. So I've brought with me experience from Anishtri Wicca, but also from the Grimoire tradition and experimenting with John Dee's work and Goethea, all kinds of things that I've worked with in the past. And I've brought that experience with me. So I'm not a reconstructionist. And for me, that's really important because I'm not trying to live in 300 BCE. I think that's unrealistic. I like washing machines. I particularly like dishwashing machines. I love my robotic vacuum cleaners, you know, so I'm not going back to 300 BCE to worship the gods. The gods for me are very manifest in the 21st century, some of them more so than others. I think amongst the ones that are very manifest for me is Hecate and Hermes and, you know, many others as well. Zeus, Dionysus, some of the gods, the goddesses are also very manifest. So for me, things have changed and I prefer to approach the gods from a devotional perspective. I believe that 
there needs to be reverence, respect. <laughs> there needs to be a relationship of them and us, even though that's not a popular thing to say. It's what works. If, if I wanted to get a corporate job in a very, very big company somewhere right now, I would still have to kind of think of the the, the boss up there and me down here and how am I going to work my way up? You know, I'm not equal to the gods. I could, I could never say, say that. I know some people are comfortable saying things like that, that I am not. So I approach it very much, I guess, from an Orphic perspective. Um, hymns like Hecate's, the, the hymn that Proclus had that I mentioned earlier to Hecate and Janus, the Orphic hymn to Hecate, um, even the Selene for any purpose in the Greek magical papyri, which is very much to Hecate, not Selene. Selene and Selene is very much equated to Hecate at that stage. They all probably sum up my approach to Hecate, if somebody is interested in understanding how I understand it. Probably Proclus and the Orphic hymn would be the, the closest understanding I have of her after you know 20 years of non-stop <laughs> kind of trying to understand her um what i will say is over the years i've learned to be more careful of the material that i read and how i understand it as well because so much of our understanding have come via late christian writers either quoting earlier sources or writing down their own ideas and experiences so a lot of this overemphasis on ghosts and witchcrafts and, you know, dark aspects of Hecate, they are there. They were always there, but they were overemphasized by the, the late Christian writers during a time that they were trying to suppress paganism. And they were trying to, in particular, get rid of the deities that were most of a, a challenge to them to eradicate. So one way of doing that was to, to suppress the cult by saying bad things about it just like we find in popular political spin or advertising or something today people suppress things by saying bad things about somebody or something and they try and get rid of it and so a lot of the material we've got come through those writers <laughs> and we've got to learn to have a little bit more discernment about who's material we give more weight to do we give more weight to the, the the writings of an ancient devotee or to an ancient christian writing about paganism and i think the same is true today is, is when we look at the, the books and stuff that we that we read and today there's so many books available not just on hecate but on everything i think we should start asking why is somebody writing this this book or why is somebody offering this course is it because they've got a connection to this deity or to the subject or to this tradition or is it just because they're trying to i guess kind of prove a point and that point might be to earn money from it or it might be to to kind of push a particular agenda and i think there's, there's a lot of importance that we have to apply today as modern practitioners of whichever tradition we define ourselves as to to try and i guess find our way through that maze of of clutter mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that 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 really kind of i think messes with people's heads sometimes because people can invest one can invest a lot of time and money into a particular 
route only to find that actually that's not really what you wanted in the first place. So for me, the first step, even with some of the other traditions that I've experimented with, if I went back and did the same again, there would be that devotional aspect, that getting to know aspect would be far more important. For example, if I went back to working with the Goetia or with the Key of Solomon, that that would be a bigger part of my work now than it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago because I've learned the importance of sucking up to the boss <laughs> yeah I mean for me I, I think in 80 or 80 20 or 90 10 um, maybe 80 percent devotional maybe 20 percent petition is, is is kind of a good way to go or even a 90 10 like I said um so yeah I think you made a good point here um I think a useful metaphor and maybe not so much a metaphor even is when we think about the gods, we might want to think about the relationship of children to adults or humans to giants, you know, and again, it's a metaphor, but it's not exactly a metaphor. Imagine if you encountered Ekati or other deities and you found that they were 20 stories tall, would you still have this irreverent attitude toward them? You know what I mean? Or if you realize that you're like a child in your understanding, like you're maybe like a three-year-old in understanding compared to their wisdom and insight and experience and age and power, would you still have this irreverent attitude, you know? And I think that devotion, what devotion does is it also purifies our consciousness and awakens our spiritual perception, which enables us to more effectively communicate and interact with these beings and so, you know, people balk at this devotion because of their egoistic hubris. Um, but really what it, devotion has a practical aspect, which aligns and attunes and purifies us. And the purificatory mysteries were an inherent component of the ancient mysteries. I, th- I, I totally agree with you. I think that I mentioned earlier about us being... Um, most of us being converts to paganism or whichever tradition we name ourselves for. And the side effect of that is a lot of people, I think, have brought with them um, what I call a Christian hangover, where they think they ought to not do anything that is done in the, in the Christian church. So being devotional or being religious is somehow bad because they equate badness with the church and they're reacting against that. And I think nothing can be further from the truth. I learned a lot from Christianity and I continue to learn a lot from Christianity because Christianity is just a continuation in many ways of the the cults of, of the temples in Rome and in Greece and in that whole area. It's a continuation. It's a very ancient tradition. I might not be a devotee of the, the one God or the Jesus figure or anything like that, but there's still value in that, just like there's value in, I mean, I learned the hard way um, a year and a half ago now to not disrespect a particular Greek goddess that I'm not very fond of. And I, it ended with me actually being electrocuted quite seriously by lightning. Um, it's, it's, it's a long story. It happened at that temple in Bulgaria. Whoa. And I have three warnings, three times. It was a little bit biblical. <laughs> I was warned. <laughs> 
three times that same day that I was warned, don't say a bad thing about the, the wife of Zeus. And I was like, <laughs> I don't like her. <laughs> and it ended in me literally being thrown. I, I'm five foot eight. I'm not tiny, but I was thrown backwards. Oh, my God. And, you know, I was okay. But, you know, I had several issues afterwards for a while. I didn't realize how bad it was until I got back to the UK a few days later. My hair fell out and I had um, little um, blisters all over my fingertips and my my feet. With it, it was into direct strike, but but the point is, blah blah blah. I can talk about that all day, and, and a couple of people, if they listen to this, will laugh because they were there and they saw it. But I, frankly, I think we need to learn that devotion and religion isn't bad words, and that Christianity might not be the religion we choose. But then I don't choose the Norse gods. I also don't choose the, you know whatever there's a lot of gods and traditions out there that isn't what i choose and we don't have to be negative about it we don't have to um, react against it and therefore miss out on a relationship that we can have with the gods just because that word religion is offensive to us or the word you know devotion or prayer or something like that is offensive to us um, I know people have bad experiences with the Christian church, but not all of us do. And not, it doesn't make the tradition or the origins of that tradition and their practices all bad. Well, and you know, I think so, that there, I apologize for interrupting you. Go on. You weren't interrupting at all. <laughs> I was going to say, I think um, part of the issue is um, an imbalanced emphasis on the Jewish influences on Christianity, which causes people to misunderstand it. I personally believe um, uh, that uh, Christianity, at least in its um, heterodox, more Gnostic expressions, owed just as much to the mystery cults, and um, and is is a continuation of the temple tradition. I mean, the Eucharist is essentially a symposium. Um, and with that in mind, if we consider that the pre-Nicene church in a, and then the heterodox Christian movement may have been very, very different and diverse, and then, you know, we had this hostile takeover from a corporate sect with powerful backers, you know what I mean, who co-opted a very different, a mystery religion, a mystery movement that probably saw itself as a continuation of an er earlier traditions and maybe was attempting to be a synthesis of many of those traditions. I mean, you can see Adonis... I mean, Easter falls on the Ad Adonalia, you know, the celebration of the death and resurrection of Adonis, and it falls within it falls within the month of Aphrodite, you know. So, so there's so much there, and when we put ourselves in these little boxes and restricts our restrict our understanding, it limits our ability to see the big picture. And when we're dealing with the gods, the gods are the gods are the gods. They they are the gods not just of one little group of people or one culture. I mean, if they, if they, if we are to call them the gods, then we must understand that they are that for all people. And, and the late, in the late pagan period, people understood that. There's some amazing examples, not just with Hecate, but I can give you a couple of examples with Hecate. With, for example, there's a, there's a little amulet that had been found with Hecate next to the kind of combo of Hermes and Anubis. Um, but certainly a standing Anubis and Hecate on the one side and a Chinubis on the other side, the, the serpent Gnostic being. And 
we've got examples of Proclus, for example, example uh, recorded an example of an oracle where he asked the oracle of Hecate in one of the Sicilian um, temples what their opinion was or what Hecate's opinion was on Jesus. And we've got a whole recording of that as well with Proclus wrote down. So there's a lot of things that, that people accepted. If you're polytheistic, in particular, I think it's not a problem to accept that there are other gods too. And some of them might be the Demiurge or some of them might be not so cool. Some of them might be more powerful and we won't speak against the bad ones that we don't <laughs> like because we get struck by lightning. But um, we, you know, there, there's a lot of days we don't have to be friends with all of them. There's a lot of people in the world. There's a lot of people in our, I don't know, social media circles. We don't have to be close friends or lovers with all of them. And it's perfectly acceptable for me to believe in all of you <laughs> and not to be best friends with all of you and not to have coffee with all of you and, and not to have all of you in my home. And it's really a chemistry thing. It's a chemistry thing. You, there's people that you meet and you know immediately we are not going to get along. And then there's people you meet and you go, boy, I really want to go to bed with that person. It, it's it's the kind of thing like that with the gods too. And I mean, that's even the platonic Eros thing. You know, I mean, I think that Eros is what you, joins us to the gods and it it is it's kind of like expanding our understanding of the gods is also like expanding our understanding of Eros to beyond just human to a divine eros where we're drawn by the power of desire to the gods that we have a natural affinity for. And um, I have to jump off here in a moment, but I do want to throw this out at you. Um, so to me, because of the archaic origins of this goddess, there was a shamanic component to her, one could say. And mm -hmm. also given the Hermes Ecate association of the Janus Hecate, Dianus, Diana, all that kind of thing, um, you know, Italian witchcraft, all of these things, there's a shamanic component. And I think something that people miss is in the ancient world, the people who were having these theophanic experiences were also engaged in active spirit flight. And if you consider that Hecate is these spaces, you know, the spirit flight piece is, I think, very big. I, th I think that that is entirely true as well. I think there's a lot of things that people, I mean, I live in Glastonbury, which is a town full of people that explore all kinds of spiritualities. There's a lot of people that would call themselves shamanic here, but what they mean in most instances is that they're drawn to some Native American, usually North American tribal practice of some sort or something, sometimes South American, you know, that's what they mean in most instances. Some people mean the Siberian, you know, original context of it as well. But in reality, when we look at the gods of Greece and the kind of Europe in general, Anatolia, that whole region, Hecate is not the only goddess who shapeshifts, not just in having more than one form, but also sometimes having the heads of animals. You find the um, very, uh, the, the kind of animal-headed goddess where she's got a wolf head or a donkey head or a horse head or an of snake head, etc. There's lots of heads associated with her. You find the same story I, I mentioned much earlier. The mother of Hegate, according to the theogony, is Asteria, the star goddess. But in the story of Zeus chasing her, 
and she shapeshifts into different forms until she eventually hits the water and becomes a floating island. But Zeus is doing the same thing. It's very similar to the story of Taliesin um, being chased by Keredwen, Keredwen in Wales, where um, they're also shapeshifting and kind of chasing each other across the landscape. And it's very shamanic because they kind of they they run across the land, they fly through the sky, they they sh- shifting into different shapes, and you've got the same. Of course, Apollo is sometimes the wolf god, and you know lots of these gods have other forms. They're not these kind of white alabaster figures standing there, kind of staring with big eyes. <laughs> and um, you know everybody knows now that those statues used to be painted in gaudy colours, but. They, those images, those kind of classic images that we've got of the, the Greek and Roman gods, isn't the whole story that these images are just symbolic forms that people could, you know, represent. But but people that grew up in those cultures and with those stories knew more about them than we could possibly know today because they had those daily experiences from childhood and the stories that they would have heard from friends and family because they didn't have Netflix. <laughs> right. And uh, <laughs> speaking of shape-shifting and going back to Christianity for a minute, um, Artemis at Ephesus, I mean, Ephesus was kind of ground zero for a lot of Christianity. And it is quite a coincidence that uh, the Ephesian Artemis, who was uh, uh, a mother figure and a virgin as well, was also the place of the the beginning of the cult of Mary, who was also the mother of, of God and a virgin. Um, so the, the, the gods changed their clothes quite easily sometimes. They, they do change their clothes and it's extraordinary. I mean, I, again, I was lucky to spend time in Ephesus. Um, I stayed in Salchik for a few days and, and went to the old city, but also to the what remains, which is not very much of the Temple of Ephesus. In fact, a lot of tourists never go there. They think they've been to the Temple of Artemis when they've been to the city of, Art, of, of, the city of Ephesus. But we also, we had a bit of a kind of strange journey there. My, my partner is a Buddhist and a completely like familiar with traveling in, in kind of weird and wonderful ways and insisted that we traveled as much as possible overland and, um, you know, avoiding kind of flying and stuff like this. So we kind of had lots and lots of adventures as a result and was traveling with my son who was seven years and very autistic, very classically autistic and disabled. So we had the situation of traveling with this child and it made it very difficult because he was completely incapable of speech at the time. And when we were finishing at the Temple of Artemis, we asked our taxi driver to take us to the house of the Virgin Mary, which is another kind of big attraction if people go to Ephesus. Not everybody makes it up there, but a lot of tour parties have a way to go up there. And and it's actually a very long distance from the city of Ephesus, the, the, the archaeological site, and the city of, of Selchuk, which is closer to where the Temple of Artemis of Ephesus is. So this taxi driver didn't speak very much English at all, and he was Muslim. And, you know, he kind of understood what we wanted because, of course, he's taking tourists everywhere. And he actually stopped halfway on this mountain road that has clearly been a fantastic, it's like a motorway going up just to this house of the Virgin Mary, which is quite a modern thing in 
in this particular mountain location in Ephesus. But halfway up, he stopped to point us to some caves, um, probably because he assumed we were a couple with a child and we might want more children. And he started trying to explain to us that this is where women go when they want to pray. They don't go up to the, the house of the Virgin Mary, but the local women still went to this cave to pray to the Virgin. <laughs> so that they could have more children if they had problems you know with their pregnancies or with getting pregnant this is where they would go and and you know there's there's a big statue of the virgin mary halfway up the mountain we got to stop there and he was like pray to her pray to her you know it's like i don't want any more children it's okay um but um you know it was a really interesting experience kind of traveling up with this local taxi driver rather than with one of the tourist services and up at the house of the Virgin Mary, it was extraordinary, the amount of people that were up there and just thousands, if not tens of thousands of lift, little strips of paper that, you know, I've got a photograph of it somewhere. Um, but, you know, strips of paper where everybody's leaving their, their prayers, which is very, very mm -hmm. reminiscent of people leaving votive offerings, really. Because if you looked at some of them, you know, which you could do because they were just pinned to this wall, you know, the, the English ones that I could understand, it was all kind of do this for me and then I'll do this for you. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And it's like, isn't that bargaining, you know? And of course, that's exactly what people went to for um, when they were trying to approach Artemis of Ephesus. She was a goddess of childbirth. She was a goddess of children and pregnancies, even though she was a virgin goddess. It's this kind of strange, I don't know, like thing that 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 is difficult to understand, I guess. Well, the connection with the moon has always been kind of a connection with childbirth. And she's conflated with Hecate, who's also the nurse and the midwife. Um, and Artemis was the midwife for Apollo, right? Yes. Yeah, which is strange. But also sometimes Elephia, which is the goddess that's sometimes thought to be Hecate, is this one of the goddesses that went there to assist in the birth as well with, with Artemis. So there's a lot of kind of connections between Artemis and Hecate that sometimes makes them very hard to distinguish which is which. Yeah. You know, not always, but, but sometimes it's, it's incredibly difficult to know exactly which goddess are you looking at? Um, I've got a frieze from a temple that, that a friend of mine um, gifted me that she found when she visited some museum somewhere and she kind of traveled back with this enormous thing. <laughs> and um, it's Hecate, but it's also Artemis. It's Hecate with a dog, but it's Artemis because there's a deer that's ahead of them. It's, it's Hecate because she's got a long tunic in on rather than the short one, which we associate with the hunting tunic of Artemis, but she's got a quiver. So there's, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap. For me, it's interesting that the more that I um, immerse myself in that, um, the less concerned I am about it and the more comfortable I am with yeah. it. Years ago, that would have really confused me and bothered me. I want things separated out very nicely and neatly, but um, mm -hmm. right now for me, it, it's I'm completely completely comfortable with that. And I assume that's how it was when that was kind of your daily practice and your mindset. Totally. I think um, w one thing, I mean, I'm a polytheist. I definitely don't believe all the gods are the same, but I think what we've got today is, is the names of a deity that 
sometimes had more than one name. So Ekathi would have been Inidia, the goddess of the roads, but she would also be called Atropos, the, the goddess, the nursemaid of children and of the young, including animals like dogs. These are a kind of theonyms, they're epithets, but they're not names, but at the same time, they are names. So I think sometimes we've just got to accept that we can't understand these deities in the way that we understand the person that lives next door to us. And I don't know if anybody, I mean, I've got lovely neighbours where I live. I'm, I'm really, really blessed like that. But I don't fully know everything that's going on in their lives. I just know their first names and their surname. And then, you know, so they might have other titles, other names that other people call them by, nicknames, descriptions for the jobs they do, etc. And the same is true of the gods, except they've existed for thousands of years. So they've accumulated more of these names, more of these descriptions, more of these functions that they fulfilled. So I'm the same. I, I don't think that we've got to limit ourselves to thinking that there's clear-cut ways that we can understand it. You do know about your neighbor with all the skulls, though. <laughs> yeah, that was, down, that was down the road. Um, it, but you know, it's an extraordinary story because more than a year went by and I had no idea. She was just the perfect little old lady next door. And, um, you know, I discovered as something we talked about before. I discovered that the lady living next door to me um, is quite a leading figure in the kind of crystal skull movement. <laughs> So this this lady that looked really really normal and and I assumed had no esoteric interests whatsoever turned out to be rather well informed about you know one aspect of it and very very in, involved in in kind of receiving psychic messages from from crystal skulls so you, yeah you just never know do you really I did want to talk about before we before we start wrapping up, um, one of my favorite versions of Hecate is the, we talked, we touched on it earlier, the Chaldean Oracle, more of a cosmic uh, mother figure, really. Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on her? She, she retains a lot of the same functions from the very beginning. Um, the very beginning, she was Absolutely. connected with the, the earth, with the sky, with the ocean. So she was already kind of, a membrane between realms. She was already kind of liminally associated with different areas. Can you maybe talk about the Chaldean version of Hecate? Yeah, so the Chaldean universe is kind of divided into kind of three main realms, if you want. So the imperial world, you've got Hadith uh, or Had, the first father, and this is you've got the kind of Chaldean triad at that point, the great gods, which is um, the first father and Hecate and the second father. But then you've also got the um, implacables, which is the Aingis, the Sinichis, the Tilakai, and the um, the ungirdling membrane that kind of separates the, the whole thing. And there's a kind of lot to that. And then you've got the first material world, where you've got um, much more of like a Hecate ruling it and, you know, all those kinds of things coming into it. And 
she's then the royal soul and the royal virtue and and all those kind of um kind of crosses over platonic and and orphic ideas a lot of this stuff and then you've got the second material world which is kind of ruled by the second father so hecate is like again she's the connector between the first father and the second father if you like um but it's such a big subject because you've got to kind of read all those different texts and stuff to understand the theology of it because it's not straight Hellenic ideas. It's the same names. It's a little bit like Orphism where you've got the same deities but a slightly different story with with Dionysus and, and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot more complicated um, for people that are only familiar with the, the Hellenic um, worldview. So in the Chaldean oracles and in the Chaldean universe, you've got this kind of three times three concept, which of course then also ties in with Hecate being three formed and and all these things as well. But but the realm of the soul is ruled by Hecate. So you've got this 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 world in between the first and the second father that is very much the realm of of Hecate. And it's it's a little bit like the astral was was Jane is saying that earlier, I think. It's a little bit like the astral world. I don't remember. Was he, he saying may that? have. It sounds like something he would say. Okay, so it's a little bit like the astral world, and Hegarty functions as a as a kind of, I guess, as a membrane between spirit and matter. So it's a very very different idea than what you've got in the kind of Hellenic or in the Anatolian worlds but at the same time she maintains a lot of the the very much the same qualities and there's seven levels for example in the imperial world which is which is interesting because you can kind of look at that seven um chaldean worlds it's like two times three plus one which again kind of brings in all kinds of interesting symbolism but it also brings in lots of stuff from you know orphism neoplatonism it's it's a huge subject but hecate has this role within that as the royal soul as the the soul of the world and without her in a way the the universe doesn't exist so it's it's a it's a fascinating idea and for me the the idea that is presented in the chaldean universe is not that different from what I said earlier that that is actually presented in theogony where you've also got Zeus honoring Ekati above all others you've got this reference that the the immortal gods are honoring her above all others as well so it's a very different 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 perspective but I think a really important perspective as well absolutely thank you for for doing that i I know we could probably make a whole show on that topic alone it's 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 huge huge, without explaining each little bit of it 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 kind of ends up being quite confusing i think totally (laughs) and it's super fascinating though so i wanted to make sure we touched on it because it is an important part of this whole hecate picture i mean for anybody interested in the platonic intelligible world for example that's very similar i think to the imperial um world in the chaldean um oracles so you kind of have to i don't know like with everything you've sometimes got to just read it all to kind of put the pieces together okay thank you uh agreed so i do want to cover one or two more things and then we'll wrap up i want to be respectful of your time um the symbol of hecate that you see very often nowadays 
I know. I think you wrote an article about it at one point. I know exactly what you're going to ask me. I know what you're going to ask me. You're going to ask me about the Aingus. <laughs> so, so there's this this Strophalos of Hecate idea, yeah. which is this symbol with a kind of labyrinthy type thing in a starry, sunny symbol in this in the centre, and a lot of people call it the Hecate wheel. So a lot of people started calling this the Strophalos of Hecate or the Aingus of Hecate and it seems to be a completely modern equation to Hecate. There's a lot of Mycenaean and um, Minoan little metal decoration discs with something similar to this, labyrinth-like symbols on it, which we don't know the actual meaning for, but it might be to do with the, the, the minus story or it might just be a decoration we don't really know and certainly some of them represent this image of Hecate that, that has now become this Hecate's wheel thing it's a nice symbol it doesn't mean anything to me personally but it means a lot to a lot of people so it has become a modern symbol of Hecate and I believe that we can create symbols I've created symbols nothing wrong with that but calling it the Strophalos of Hecate or the Aings of Hecate is, is misleading because Hecate did have this wheel that the theaters worked with. Now, I've got this one here in my office, um, which actually this was sold as an exercising um, device. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to work up, but but I found it in flea, I found it in a flea market, believe it or not, and I love it because it's it's made from this like silver yeah. metal. It's quite heavy, um, but this is the one I've got in my office. I I work with ones made from wood mostly, but this is probably what the eyes of Hecate would have been, which is a spinning disc that you know may or may not have had um inscriptions on it or wording or decorations certainly the wooden ones i have have got um decorations but the way it works is you kind of some people would be familiar with them as as children's toys as whirly wigs you kind of wind them up like this and then you kind of spin them and the kind of some of them will make a sound when they spin this one is quite silent because it wasn't made for that purpose but um you know if you think about it in terms of things like the Buddhist prayer wheels is how I use the ones myself. And it was safe that the theorists used them to invoke Hecate. And that's how I use not this one, but the, the ones I have in my temple. So you just spin it and it, it literally is, I don't know if it's very visible on camera, but it just spins over and over and over again. And it's quite a meditative trance invoking um, thing to use. You can sit like this for a very long time and, when you've got one that, that makes a sound, they kind of whir. So the wooden ones that, that I've made myself it really whirs. So it creates, it emits this kind of high frequency sound, which is quite interesting because that's described. And this tool is also associated with Eros and Aphrodite. Um, and in the case of Eros, he uses it to incite lust between two people. And... Um, and then Jason. And Jason as well with Medea, yeah. Right, right. So he's for love magic as well. And but with with Hecate specifically named as a tool used by the theorists to make her appear and to create that kind of connection with her. I mean, like I said, this this one in particular is not for me, this is not a ritual object, it's kind of a bit of an oddity because it's just silver and 
you know, with solstice and exercising, and it's, and it's is actually really, really heavy. But um, they're very easy to make because they're essentially just a disc with two holes in it and a string. You don't need these things at the end. They're just to hold on to. I find them very, very useful to kind of write invocations on or, you know, particular sigils or something I want to empower. And it can just be really, really interesting kind of sitting and, and doing this motion because kind of our physical bodies is also part of our magic and, and theory and sorcery, I think it's, a really important part that is sometimes overlooked in favour of just thinking about things rather than doing things and, and rather than moving. So this kind of forces you into this this trance-like state. And the strophalus, in addition to, to being a spinning object, sometimes said to also be a ball with a stone in this in the centre, which is, is kind of flung more similar to maybe a a bull roarer that is still used sometimes again, as a twee these days, but was used for kind of weather magic and for invocations. Do you believe that type was what Proclus was using? Um, it sounds more like what Proclus was using is, is the kind of ball. And um, again, it's not impossible to kind of reproduce that today. I've got a couple of objects that I've repurposed for, for that kind of work. Cool. And it's interesting, but it's very, very different. You know, it's very different from from, from sitting and and. And pulling on the Iingus, which I can think of as this one, as the kind of spinning one. And there's also another variety which has been written about in this, an example, I think, in the Metropolitan Museum of um, of Fine Art, which is more like a, do you know those like 80s um, executive toys that just had perpetual motion? Right, yeah. And it's a little bit like that. It's like an object that just with, with loss of birth because of, I, of course, the word Iingis come from the Rhinic bird. And um, it, it's possibly an object that was put into perpetual motion by just kind of spinning it. And then it just, you know, kind of did that the whole time. My father had lots of things like this that he collected. He didn't have a desk in the house, but he, <laughs> he had these things. <laughs> they were popular. It was like an 80s. Yeah, it was like an 80s thing, wasn't it? It's like a... Um, I might just go out and see if I could find some of them. Um, I think they used to annoy me, but sometimes they were really fascinating. You know, the most popular one was the balls, of course, that you kind of click, click, right. click. But I think if you think about it, it's not dissimilar to what the Buddhist prayer wheels are. It's kind of like the spinning kind of sings the, the prayer up into the heavens. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, I do think we need to wrap up. I would love to keep talking to you. So where can people follow up with you where can they find you what are some good places that you can let people know to to track you down and and see what you're doing so i've got a website sarita.co.uk i'm not terribly active on there but all the kind of reference material can be found on there you know books i've written i've i've written a few books on hecate um circle for hecate which is what i grabbed when i just showed you the um image of the this strophalos of the of the wheel of hecate um, Hecate Liminal Rice, which was written about 10 years ago with David Rankin, which is good if you're interested in the more magical side. Circle for Hecate goes more into the symbols and the mythologies and the places she was worshipped. Um, I'm also a key bearer for the Covenant of Hecate, which Jane has mentioned earlier. So there's a lot of information on that website. 
and the community is quite active in doing all kinds of things. We've got a private Facebook group and there's a newsletter and, and all kinds of things that other people can explore from that website, which is www.hegetycovenant.com. But you can just follow me on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page, Sarita DSD, or on Instagram as well. I, I tend to pop up there and, and post things. I try and respond to emails, but I'm not always terribly good at it. Well, and Avalonia. Don't forget Avalonia. <laughs> oh, yes. Sorry. Yes, Avalonia. Let's get a marketing hat. Um, no, I've got a small publishing company called Avalonia and I publish fabulous books by fabulous people, including myself. It's true. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. And on behalf of Janice, who had to to run, um, we really appreciate you coming on and talking with us. It's been a long time coming. We've really wanted you on for a long time. So it's great to ha finally make this happen and uh, just thank, thank you. you. It's been really, really fun. And thank you for being so patient with me. <laughs> Okay, that was Sarita Dieste. Boy, what a treat it was having her on. What a powerhouse, a tour de force of a human being. Um, I have so much respect for her. She has done major, major work. Um, you know, right now, Ecate is in vogue. And I think that's a good thing in some ways, because the people who are sincere in their aspiration may make contact with something genuine. Um, but we can really thank Sarita for most of the heavy lifting. I mean, yes, there are some important voices coming out nowadays, uh, putting forth some historically based work on Ecate that deserve respect and appreciation. However, it's Sarita that 10, 12, 15 years ago was putting this word out, was forming this organization, was putting these books out. It was her who had this passion, this enthusiasm, and, you know, you see it reflected in the breadth and depth of her knowledge. There's something about her that speaks to me that says, this is somebody who's made contact with the gods. This is not somebody who's play acting a role. This is somebody who has made some kind of sincere, quote unquote, Gnostic contact. And I think that is immeasurably valuable. And I really want to see her get the credit she deserves for the contribution she's made and for the foundation she's built, which is turning to, into a sort of um, a renaissance of interest in the goddess Ekati. But unfortunately, since we're in the information age, all information in our age has a shadow. So people also have to be able to distinguish. They have to develop the skill to distinguish between the misinformation, which is largely born out of the neo-pagan movement, and it's false ideas about Ecate, which can be traced back to Gerald Gardner and brought before him, Eliza Crowley. Unfortunately, though, this you know, spread got popularized in the 60s, had another boost in the 90s and 90s. And now we have a new generation of people spouting the maiden, maiden mother crone stuff. All I can do to them to say to them is recommend Sarita's works, recommend her sacred fires. Um, as well as liminal rights and the other excellent uh, work that Sarita has put forth. Her, pub her publishing house, Avalonia, has consistently put forth very high-quality books. I mean, her book on Thoth by Leslie Jackson um, that, 
that Sarita published is excellent um, in terms of sophiology, the book, The Cosmic Shekinah, another fantastic book, her book on Artemis, also excellent. Um, I can't say enough positive things about her. She's cool. And so many of these people are, I'm sorry, but they're dorks. They have no social skills. They, 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 they're play acting and LARPing magic. It's not what magic's about. These are sacred mysteries. These are mysteries of the divine beings. They're transformational in nature. I mean, they're not for people sitting and playing World of Warcraft for 12 hours a day. And this is part of the problem with the internet age. So we need to get back to this orientation of piety towards the divine. And I think that we're dealing with a person who understands that. Well, I, I, uh, I can't follow that, that, uh, I, there's nothing more I could really add. Um, Janice has had a few glasses of wine and it's, it's loosened up a little and <laughs> telling it how it is. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't say it's not true at all. Um, but yeah, in all honesty and in all seriousness, um, brilliant author, scholar, she balances very well the scholarly with the practical like we um, tend to we tend to kind of veer in that direction and having said that we're going to move into the book selection for the week or for the episode Uh, this one is going to be on me it's uh, Hecate Soteria by Sarah Isles Johnson and this is this should be it should be a given that this is in your library if you're interested in this topic in this subject matter. Um, if you don't have it, I would recommend highly that you you get it. This is an extremely pertinent work, which highlights the Middle Platonic Chaldean Hecate mostly, but compares and contrasts this understanding and particular reverence of the Titan with earlier myths and understandings of her nature and function. The author discusses in-depth Hecate's role as guide and intermediary, uh, the connections to the moon, her cosmic womb, her role as ensoler and enlivener, the anima mundi, and it isn't a stretch to find common ground here with uh, Barbello and Sophia. The book talks about uh, the theurgium magic associated with this deity, the inix wheels, and ainges, which is directly relevant to anyone interested in the uh, Wilkes Magicae. Uh, it talks about her epiphanies and much more. So it's really all about contextualizing in order to construct a strong foundation that can then be built upon. It's, it's a very thorough book. It will give you a very thorough understanding and look at this goddess from the, a classical perspective. And, you know, then you can go from there with with the information, but it's it's good to educate yourself if you, especially if you're going to be out there. I see people talking about this goddess out on the interwebs, and they actually don't know anything about her. They've kind of created some idea from maybe a TV show or who knows where else, um, and they don't know anything about her history. So, Sarita's books are an excellent place to start, and then I would say. Uh, Sarah Isles Johnson, who has many other excellent books uh, that she's written that we won't get into now, but uh, you might want to check her out as well. So that's the the book, Hecate Soteria, S-O-T-E-I-R-A. 
Yeah, and I just want to I just want to echo that. I mean, Sarah Isles Johnson's book is sort of the the gold standard. It's you need to read this book if you want to understand equity. Don't worry about internet personalities. Don't worry about internet groups. Don't worry about what's cool and what's not cool. Don't worry about TV shows. You're talking about a sacred being, a divine being, a holy being, a being that is also grave in terms of her antiquity and her ancientness. You need to understand her properly if you're going to approach her and have any genuine experience. Um, This book will definitely provide that. Can't recommend it enough. It is one of the best on the subject ever written. Okay. And having said that, we just want to thank you once again for all the support and for your listenership throughout the years. We love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Thankful for you guys. And, you know, I realize we cut loose a little bit uh, on this outro, but <laughs> we, um, the, the, the fact that we're cutting loose is not because we want to tear into anyone in particular. Um, you know, nobody, we're not trying to be the savage dragon or anything. What we're trying to do is say, look, these things require piety. I understand that that's not a popular concept in today's culture. There's a sort of celebrated irreverence, which really, I think, arises from the secular space. This is incompatible with true experience and interaction with and Congress with the divine. If you want to expand your life and have these experiences of the numinous, then you must learn to cultivate a healthy amount of appreciation and respect for these beings of such great antiquity. We have to change our perspective. We have to change the way we look at these things. If we wanna be able to get anything out of the experience beyond an ego stroking. I mean, if you wanna masturbate, you can do that without any of this. The fact is there is something very special to be had from the gods and from the divine beings and from the spirits and from from the immaterial world that penetrates our material realm. But you're not going to get there if you don't have the proper orientation and attitude. And so when you hear us become frustrated, it's primarily because of irreverence and because of vain ideas which are incompatible. And also you know, unfortunately, in America, we deal with a lot of um, Protestant evangelical conditioning that limits people mentally also. So there is also that component. Um, there's so much more we could go into on this subject. Might be a good idea to have an episode about it sometime. But th- uh, the takeaway I want to leave with everyone here is if you're going to approach Akati, first thing I would do is empty your mind of all of your preconceptions return to historical sources, use those as a basis, and then um, start small, stay humble, move slowly, be patient, and be respectful. Okay, you can find us on uh, YouTube and iTunes and blah, 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 blah. So find us in all those places, (laughs) and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. (laughs) 